You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. If you guys haven't checked out the new Navigator series from Lacrosse, I strongly suggest you do that. Two really good boots within that Navigator series, the Windrose and the Atlas. If you want to find out more information about all of the boots that Lacrosse offers, visit their website, lacrossefootwear.com. You won't regret it. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. XP podcast. We are setting records every week. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Make sure that if you know somebody who is enjoying this Houndsman lifestyle, that they are subscribing to the Houndsman XP podcast. If you haven't done so already, go to iTunes and leave us a rating. Make it a five-star rating. Make sure you're writing a couple lines about what you're enjoying about the podcast and if you have a suggestion for the podcast, send us a message or an email. You can find our email addresses uh, and, and a way to send us a private message or direct message. Private message off Facebook, direct message off of Instagram. So our Facebook page is Houndsman XP Podcast. And our Instagram account is Houndsman underscore XP underscore podcast. This week is no different. We bring you a legend a legend in hound sports coming to us from Cortez, Colorado. We have Mr. Van Johnson on the podcast this week. He has over 60 years of following hounds, uh, working as a, as a USDA government hunter. He worked for the Colorado Department of Wildlife for several years, uh, handling nuisance complaints all across Colorado. He has bred his own line of dogs to pursue bear and mountain lion in the Rocky Mountains in the state of Colorado as well. He's written a book titled The Houndsman that describes his life with hounds and making a living with his hounds. Uh, he was making VHS tapes back in the day and has now converted those over to DVD for his viewers. You can find all of his information after you get introduced to him here on our podcast, but you can find Van Johnson at vanjohnsonhounds.com. That's vanjohnsonhounds.com. He's an entertaining guy. We're going to talk to Mr. Johnson about guiding and outfitting all across the West, but in particular his uh, hound adventures and his clients that came and hunted with him. He's going to talk about how hunting has changed over his lifetime and some of the positive things that he still sees coming out of out of hounds and what his prediction is for the future of our lifestyle as houndsmen. We're also going to talk about the ongoing issue, ballot box biology, 
the forced introduction of the Canadian gray wolf in Colorado. You want to hear what this seasoned and experienced houndsman has to say about wolves. Make sure you're visiting our sponsor, W Hunting Supply at dusupply.com. You can find all of our logo wear, merchandise, things like that, and they can outfit all of your hound hunting needs. So make sure you're picking that up. And without any further delay, enjoy this podcast. We have Mr. Van Johnson exclusively for you. Steve, good evening. How are you doing today? Well, it is an evening here. The sun went down, so uh, I would say it's evening here in the great state of Florida, uh, the land where the old elephants go to die, and uh, everything is good down here. I'm a little bit foggy today. I was up much too late last night following coonhounds around through the orange groves, and but I heard, everything's good. I heard the story, and... and... Do you want to talk about that, or do you just want to? Uh, I heard the whole. Oh, you want to? Yeah, well, it's not pretty, you know. <laughs> the story was that big. <laughs> and you, you, you want you want the enhanced version, or you want the cold, the give, down and dirty? <laughs> no, give us the 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 typical houndsman version. Oh, <laughs> typical houndsman. <laughs> well, my dog looked really good last if, night. And I if mean, you had really, been, he was yeah. on top of his game. Right there we go. Yeah, and if, if it hadn't have been the big moon, you know, and if they hadn't picked oranges in my favorite section there, so there was nothing for the coon to eat, and if it hadn't, you know, if the tracks had been a little hotter, and. uh you know, the night had been a little longer. We probably would have treated more coons. There you go. <laughs> but <laughs> but the fact was, we did tree one off a good track right out the out the box there, and uh, man, we said this is going to be a great night. But uh, it went downhill from there, and we won't go into all the gory details. We did uh, make some trees. I will say that much. Um, but coon really weren't moving much last night. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm an old school guy. You know, that moon affects things in my view. And a lot of younger hunters don't seem to think that's true, but I, I'll, I'll stick with that. You know, the thing <laughs> of it is, I think it's, if you believe it, then, you know, it transfers over to your yeah. attitude. Cause I'm, I'm of that old school thinking too. And, and a lot of times I don't go. I don't know how my dog would look on a full moon night because I'm of that old school thinking and I don't go. So, well, that's it. My dad always told me, you know, son, leave those dogs in the pen on this old cold moonlight night because you're just going to get them after trash and coon aren't going to be moving. And I, he believed that, you know, and he ingrained that in me pretty deep back back in the day but yeah that's the excuse we we fell back on but we uh we really uh didn't see many uh coons last night saw a few setting up but had a good time well uh, so, that's all so social media has created a, a, a situation where we can have outstanding hunts any night of the year so uh you take a couple mm -hmm. pictures and and uh ride it up and and put it up there and here we are i mean look at me and you that's we're all stars right. <laughs> that's right 
as you said, you know, I've got I've got that face for radio, so uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, hey, we got a great guest today, right? We do. We do, and I'm super excited to have Mr. Van Johnson on the podcast this evening. Van, how are you doing this evening? In the house. Absolutely. I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Yeah, and uh Van, you are from Cortez, Colorado. Is that correct? Right in the four corners. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and of course we've known of you for several years. Um uh, you you've been around hounds and living the houndsman lifestyle and and guiding and outfitting in the West for, for a number of years. We've known about you a lot longer than you've known about us, I can tell you that. Uh, you know, you, you made videos and, and have marketed those but and hunted all over the West for your entire life. Is that pretty accurate? Uh, pretty much, yes, sir. How many, how many years have you been hunting hounds? Well, I started when I was nine, and I'm 73, so I guess do the math. A long time, I can tell you that. Yeah. How about that, Van? You and I are the same age, exactly. Uh, 1946? Yes, sir. Yeah. All right. What month? October. Well, you're uh, a month older than me. Hallelujah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get I finally away. met a hunter older than me. <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, man, I can't get a, away from that. It seems like every group I get into the, uh, these days, I'm the old guy. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I got invited to an old timey line hunters reunion down at Cliff, New Mexico, this last summer, and uh, they they named it right because I was the youngest guy there. <laughs> I felt actually good about it. Well, <laughs> Yeah, that's it, it. The opportunities aren't don't come around very often to be the young no, guy no. for me. <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Well, we've talked about it on the podcast before, Van. You know, the, the, uh, younger houndsmen need to really, really cherish the fact that there are houndsmen uh, that have been around that can kind of light the path forward for the for the younger people. So. Um, yeah, I celebrate it. I celebrate it. 60, what'd you say? You're 73, nine years old, 62 years, 64 years with hounds. 64 yes, years sir. with hounds. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Uh, you got to have a passion for it. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris, before we get away from it, maybe we can come back to it. I'd like to hear about that reunion that you went to, Van. I don't know if you want to go ahead and get do some bio at this point, Chris. No, let's go let's ahead and talk absolutely. about that. Yeah, we're right on it. We might as well go with it. Well, I good, had a good friend, Ray Hatchett. Uh, uh, was, they had a, a benefit auction, and he was going to do the auction, and he invited me to go with them and went down and uh, met some of the old-timers uh, just like you uh, forementioned about me that I'd always heard about some of those guys uh uh, Warner Glenn and mm. uh, Shell Terrell uh, Shelley, uh, I think was the main two. There was Richard Holcomb. There was quite a few guys there. Uh, uh, you know, my age is catching up with me. Names 
kind of, but I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to hear some of those stories. And uh, those guys live a, a, lot, a western life out there in that country, you know, and a hunt tough country and are tough individuals to be able to do it, I can tell you that. Yeah, mm-hmm. whereabouts was the reunion at, Van? It was in Clift at uh, Terrell Shelley's uh, ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't remember the name of the ranch. I, I had never been to that country. I I thought I had just about hunted everywhere, but that was that little corner south uh, west corner of New Mexico. I never hunted down there, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it was dry, <laughs> hard country. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. Yeah, is that fairly close to where the um, Slash Ranch hounds? Uh, family there dub evans and and that that group didn't they weren't they from around that area you know uh they hunted the the black ring range in that country mm-hmm. down through there you know the uh when you uh talk to those guys you know they that was geronimo's stronghold where some of the where he held it out held out the last days of his mm-hmm. life and uh, it, they've got some stories, man. You would love to interview some of those guys now. Oh, for sure. Uh, were there any Ben Lilly stories floating around? You know, uh, it was, you know, a, a large group of people, not a large group of people. Actually, it was a select group of people, but, uh, I didn't hear any, no, but I'm sure no, there was. Mm-hmm. I'm right. sure they could have told you some. Well, do these older hunters that you mentioned there, these veterans and all, do they still keep hounds? Uh, any of them, you think? Uh, Warner Glenn uh, still hunts, uh, you know, and he's got a daughter. Uh, I think Warner's 81, and he's still, I asked him if he still rode his, you know, he does all of his hunts horseback and I asked him if he was still riding as hard as he used to uh do when he hunted and he said he had to he couldn't walk no more <laughs> <laughs> but, but I I really enjoyed uh with him I uh, uh probably visited with him a little more and his daughter Kelly and uh boy you're talking about some unique people uh I sure sure enjoyed visiting with mm. them and uh, what an opportunity. We've, we've wrote several yeah we've we've corresponded and uh, traded books uh he wrote a uh has a book written and i traded him one of my books for his books and so does uh 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 terrell shelley has a book and uh man i sure enjoyed them well, we're yeah. going to have to get the information about where those books are available so we can pass that along, you know. Yeah, I'd be glad and to I'm, give it to you. Sure, sure. You where, whereabouts, yeah, that was quite a deal. Whereabouts, since we're on that subject, whereabouts do people find find their book? And we'll get to your book here in a minute. Um, but for Terrell Shelley and, and uh, some of those guys, where will we find their book? You know, uh, Terrell and uh, and Warner's book was authored and edited by uh, Ed Ashurst, 
A S H U R Z T. I'm thinking it's kind of got you know one of those funny letters there. It looks like a Z. Okay. Um, no, it's a S T. I see it in the on the other book here. A S H U R S T. And I'm sure he has a website. I know I've uh, he was there at that deal. No rancher. I'm not sure he had hounds, but he. Uh, he was an editor, and, and uh, these guys told him their stories, and he uh, put it down kind of like the Dale Lee book yeah. was authored by another fellow. But anyway, uh, he sure is a good writer and really put those two books together real well. So there are two distinct books, one each by Warner Glenn and, and Terrell Shelley, right? Yes, and they're okay. both authored in edited uh the name of the book is uh stories that tell terrell shelley told me and then the other book is the legend times of warner glenn sounds like great reads i'm gonna look them up as soon as we're done (laughs) (laughs) they're they're both i mean you will thoroughly enjoy both books there's a lot of history about geronimo and the country and uh their generations um probably warner glenn is uh and his his father uh can't uh don't recall his name, but they they did uh, a lot of movies, uh, taking a lot of people. Uh, Supreme Justice, uh, one of the Supreme Justice uh, judges, mm-hmm. hunting. I mean, I, I've taken a lot of hunters that uh, hunted with uh, Warner and his dad through the years, and a little different type of hunting than what I do in a little different country, but I've never heard a bad word about either one of those guys. Yeah. Awesome. That's pretty neat stuff. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about, uh, Van Johnson a little bit. We ready. We we ready to shift gears. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the reason, the reason we wanted to find you and talk to you, Van, is because, you know, when you, when you look at, uh, when I look at your website, I, I look at the, the description on your book. Um, one of the things that caught my eye about the whole thing was it was stories about your hunting, but you included a line in there and the friends I met along the way. And yes, sir. And that spoke volumes to me when I start thinking. You know, when I, when I read that, I thought, here's a guy that that uh, wants to tell his story, but he also wants to tell his friends' stories and 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 showcase them as well. So whatever inspired you to write a book? Well, encouragement from friends, mostly family. Uh, I'm, you know, I build a, my livelihood off of, uh, personal relationships with my clients. I've, uh, I, I've been a outfitter and guide for the past, uh, 40 years. And, uh, I started out uh, just word of mouth on my hunts, and and that word spread. And uh, so, when a when I years and years and years, I I kept people in my home, and they slept in my house, they ate at my table, and we rode 
in a pickup together for uh, uh, five days. When I first started hunting, we actually did 14-day lion hunts. That, has, that tells you how hard the hunting was. Wow. But uh, anyway, uh, you you people don't you don't live that close to people and don't form a bond and uh, relationship and uh, and you and you ride together 24 hours sevens, you know, and and mm-hmm. you tell stories. And uh, I think that's a lot of people can't believe that I can remember a hunt that happened 50 years ago. The reason why I can, I've told them a hundred thousand times, but, uh, so, so you, you ride around and you tell stories and, and just one person right after the other told me, you know, you know, you know, you need to write a book. Uh, and so I wrote a book. That's how that came about. Yeah. And and Steve, Steve's written his book, a book as well. So, Steve, you want to you want to f- follow up with some of that? Did we lose Steve? We lost Steve. Uh-oh. I think we lost him. I am here. I am <laughs> He he stayed out until three we o'clock. We put him to sleep, take, didn't we? He was taking a nap. Hey, you know what? You, you know what? Uh, we've got this little switch on this mic here. You know. <laughs> And I turn it off when I need to call for whatever. And sometimes back to this age thing, man. (laughs) So Steve was sitting there going, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And then we hear the button click. He's like, yeah, I'm here. Uh, uh, Well, I was listening to uh, to everything uh, that Van said for sure. And uh, yeah, about writing the book, my experience was kind of the same, Van. Of course, I had written for magazines uh, because of my work, you know, I worked for the dog registries for, uh, the listeners know UKC, PKC and the AKC finally. And that was my job. And so I had to write along the way. And there was a lot of stories that I gathered it, like you, you know, stories, uh, from riding in the pickup and hunts that I'd taken around the country and so forth. And so, uh, at the encouragement of a few people, you know, I did the same thing and I enjoyed it. And, uh, uh and you know, I would, I would like to do more of that. Uh, I tell people all the time though, that uh, I wish I'd written the book 20 years ago, back when people actually did read books, you know, <laughs> more, more and more people now, you know, get their information online or, you know, on, in social media or, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it, if you, uh, if you have stories to tell, you want to tell them. And there's really no better way to archive all of what an exciting life you've had is to put it down, you know, and I get people ask me about that all the time about, you know, people tell me I should write a book. What do I do? And I tell them to just write something every day. Uh, Just make sure you write something every day. And then as you get more comfortable with writing, you know, these stories will come, uh, uh, more easily and all that's, you know, I had no formal training as a writer. I don't imagine that you did either. Did you van? No, I was a, it was a challenge. I had no idea, nobody to give me information. You know what? It kind of reminded me when I started hunting, you know, nobody, uh, was willing to help a person in, in that age 
you know, there was very few outfitters and they didn't want any competition, so they didn't help you. So it, you learn everything by trial and error, and that's the way that book writing went. You know, I just uh, really uh, struggled with it. And uh, I, I, I even tried to get uh, an amateur or two that was claimed to be pretty good writers, you know, in their own mind uh, to help me write that book. And when I told a story and they rewrote it, I just didn't like the way it sounded. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe my book don't make sense to a lot of people, but I wrote it. So I kind of understand it. And, <laughs> and uh, I wrote it for friends and I wrote it for hopefully my free future uh, grandchildren and uh, I wanted to know me and I wanted to know I wanted to, to know what I did so I wrote it in my own words and uh, that's the way I'm proud that's, of it that's always the best fan that's always the best way absolutely for sure yeah well uh, where, let's jump in here right quick and tell people where you can get that where they can get your book well, I'd appreciate it if they would go to my website, and that's uh, vanjohnsonhounds.com. Uh, it, it will try to, uh, Google will try to send you sometimes to Amazon, and if they'll go not to Amazon but to my website, vanjohnsonhounds.com, I'll send them a autographed copy, and I'll even pay the shipping on it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Chris, I don't know where uh, where you want to go at this point, but what I'd like to know is is get that backstory, you know, about that uh, nine years old uh, coming forward with Van. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to get there. <laughs> well, I, I, nobody will have to buy the book if I do all that. Well, we won't, we won't, give, we won't give away the whole book. But, uh, yeah. Uh, can you give us a teaser? You know, can you it give was us just, a teaser? Uh, well, I, I think the you know every every story's got to have a beginning, and and as I said in the book, mine started. Uh, uh, I lived in the South in uh, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, not in Knoxville, but in the country there around Knoxville at that time. And uh, your whole uh, social life, uh, which isn't wasn't very good, but uh, was around your church. And uh, my Sunday school teacher, teacher Archie Nielsen, uh, invited me to uh, go, his whole uh, group, to go fox hunting one night. And, and I went, and uh, about midnight it started raining, and and he took us all home, and I was hooked from that day forward. I just uh, couldn't get enough of it. I, I've had a passion that... that uh, you know, if if you're going to be good at something, I don't care what that something is, you've got to have a passion for it, and and I did. It just seemed like uh, that's what I wanted to do. If somebody would have told me at an early age I was going to be able to raise a family and and uh, and make a, my livelihood of off my hounds and uh, the mm. the products of of that, uh, I would have never believed them, but. Uh, Fortunately, that's the way it happened. Yeah, absolutely. So then, we, we've talked about that before on the podcast, Van. We've talked about the importance of, you know, introducing these young people to, to this lifestyle and uh, even shared stories about, you know, Steve take has taken kids from 
church groups. I've taken kid, kids from church groups. And you never know which one of those kids, just like you, are going to go home that night and think, that was it. That was the bomb. I'm getting involved. And you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. It, yeah, it, it, you know, it's just something that, uh, and and I've always tried to uh, impart <clears throat> the what knowledge I've got about the hounds and the the hunting and uh, to younger people. And and it's just what what you said exactly right. You never know which ones are going to take to it and and uh, and which ones won't. But it, but you've got to take that first step or that second step will never happen you know we don't get to choose which person the bug bites but the one that the ones that you know when it does bite if it if it's the right person you know wow you know they can turn a whole lifestyle into into following these hounds and being involved well i had four boys i raised four boys and uh one of them still hunts with me and the other three uh I'd have to hold a gun on to get them to go with me. Probably they, <laughs> they just, uh, they, I, I, I think I burned them out too much when they were too young, actually. Mm. And you can't force it. You've got to, they, they'll either do it or they won't. That's been my experience, man. You know, I have one boy and, uh, he started out, I thought he's going to be really be a houndsman and hunter. And then other interests came along sports and, and all, all, we're all individuals, you know, but like you, you know, I was bitten at a very young age and, and could never shake it. You know, I never tried to, it was always something I, I love to do. And, uh, and, uh, I'm sure that's the case with you. Well, tell us more about how, you know, that progressed from that point on for you. Well, uh, what happened was I, I hunted, uh, fox and when i say i hunted fox uh it wasn't really any hunting to it in the south fox hunting you never you never took a gun you uh, i'd never seen a fox killed in 10 years you you go fox chasing i guess you might want to say you know and it's all about the dogs and it's all about camping out and it's all about the food and it's all about the uh the the pure uh relationships that you have you know but uh it was for me it was just something that uh, i couldn't wait to do again we we hunted at least two or most most time two and sometimes three times a week and hunted all night uh it was from before dark to after daylight kind of hunt but i did that and, and then my family moved from uh tennessee to utah and uh, I, between my junior and senior year in high school, and I had to give up my hounds there for a couple of years, and end up in uh, Gillette, Wyoming, and and took up the sport of uh, coon and bobcat hunting, and I uh, did a lot of I coon hunted six, seven nights a week for probably another ten or twelve years, and uh, did a lot of competition hunting and. Uh, that's a side I didn't know about you that's interesting and uh, I wore a good friend of mine Ed Sittner and I wore out a pickup Mm. uh, in a couple of years going to coon hunt someplace but uh, it was good Uh, and then I got into the big game hunting and that uh, 
kind of uh, squashed my coon hunting career. Uh, and I quit, even quit bobcat hunting because when you're line hunting, you don't want to get down in a canyon and have the dog switch from a cold line track to a hot bobcat track and chase bobcats around for a half a day. The, those clients that pay those big, that big money don't appreciate that very much. So <laughs> I pretty much bobcat and, uh, line hunted up until, uh, oh, 2000, 2000, uh, the state of Colorado, the bear and lion depredation started getting so bad. Uh, they stopped the bear hunting with baits and with hounds in 1992, uh, uh, on the mm-hmm. bear. And so, uh, by 2000, the bear population had got to where it, uh, was causing so much damage that they offered me a I don't I always told everybody they got tired of chasing me around trying to catch me do something wrong that I wasn't doing and finally just decided if they hired me they could tell me where to go and what to do but uh, they hired me and yeah yeah to keep me (laughs) under control I guess and for the next 18 years I've worked for them five or six months a year in the summertime especially I was on call all year but I I worked for them full time for from the first of April or May all the way through to October when the deer and elk season started. So and, what uh, what kind of things I, did you do for for Colorado Fish and Wildlife? It was Fish and Wildlife back now back then, and now it's Parks and Wildlife. But yes, sir. So when you were on call and you got a call for for that, what did what did that look like? Well, it it uh, without going into a lot of details uh i was a full-time part-time employee which meant that uh, i was full-time from uh the first of april through the end of october and uh so i worked uh basically uh seven days a week for the for that period of time and uh i did all of their damage control okay depredation control yeah all over the state of colorado i may get a call tonight to be uh 10 hours from here and drive all night and be there in the morning and hunt all day and get into camp and get another message to be eight hours the other direction Uh, Mm. so i I did a lot of traveling and seen a lot of i I pretty much seen the whole state of colorado uh one trail at a time (laughs) but uh it it was it was a neat neat time good job something i really enjoyed doing and then through the winter if they had a uh a depredation a line dep- depredation call or sometimes uh uh anytime they had a hum- they called a human uh conflict uh human health and safety conflict they would call me uh if somebody got mauled or hurt in that regards they'd call me and i'd go take care of that problem but uh that's that's basically what i did i didn't didn't do any of the uh garbage can bear or the town bear it was all livestock produce or human health and safety conflicts mm. Mm. Yeah, well that's interesting. Uh, yeah, how many dogs would you typically have at that time, Van? 
Well, when uh, 10 or 12 or somewhere in that neighborhood, Mm -hmm. I I usually didn't keep more than what I could haul and uh, probably try to split them up and run them in two different packs. Now, when I was outfitting uh, pretty much full-time, I kept three packs of dogs between 15 and 30. Uh, but uh yeah i didn't keep quite that many in the later years but mm-hmm. did you establish a breeding program with those dogs or did you uh reach outside to get get to replenish when you needed a hound well you know that's that's something i wish we had more time i, I really enjoy talking about the uh the way the uh the hound breeds and the quality of the hounds uh got better as the years went on you know when i first started uh i ran most of the lee brother uh dale lily type or uh you know those older type big game dogs and uh they were really really good trail dogs cold nose trashy couldn't hardly break them off the trash till they were four or five year old and a lot of them didn't even start treeing until they were four or five year old uh, mm. so you had to keep a, a really uh big range in the age in your dogs some older dogs you know and younger dogs but uh mainly because the younger dogs just didn't tree and uh and then when ukc uh went from you know at, at that time it was a hundred strike and a hundred uh tree points and they they wanted they knew they needed to make better tree dogs so they they started giving you an extra 25 points for first tree mm-hmm. i don't know you guys probably remember that but steve what year uh, would that have been that have been right well 85 or so well that would have, the 125 point tree was already in effect when i went to work full-time at ukc okay. in 1983 but that would have happened in the 70s i think uh van you know, you men- mentioned yeah. Ed Sittner earlier, and uh, I, uh, a dog named Horse comes to mind. You remember that dog? Well, he had a uh, – yeah, I mean, I yeah. don't remember well, a dog named Horse, but I, I remember most of his dogs. I, You know, I, I'm ne- I probably – if I would have met you about that time, I probably wouldn't remember you the next day, but I could probably told you what your – dogs look like 20 years later (laughs) right and i I didn't mean to get off as we say on a rabbit path there but yeah um i just remembered him being uh, a pivotal player there in the first when the ukc world championship uh began in 1978 and yeah he that time excuse me he bought he bought a dog uh that placed really big in the in the hunts um you know, and uh, it—I don't think his name was Horse, but I, yeah. I, if if I had a minute, I could tell you what it was. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, and and Ed and I went—we he we traveled together just all over the country, and we had a lot of good times. And uh, but anyway, when when UKC went to the 125 point uh, awards. It really changed the dogs. Uh, gradually, the the tree and instincts got better, and the trailing 
abilities got worse. And uh, so that was a kind of a one big milestone that I seen in the, in the hounds. They got a lot of the trash running bread out of them about that time too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, it evolved through the years. Uh, I kind of had to go back. Uh, I, 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 I really lucked out. I got a dog that came out of Riverton, Wyoming, an old blue tick dog. Uh, and it, it was just, it's quite a story the way I end up getting that dog, but he changed my whole, uh, hound structure and my breeding programs, uh, that I've raised those dogs ever since out of that old blue dog and bred pretty close. And I'm still hunting those same type dogs and they, uh, they're just easy training and they really work for the type of hunting that I have done in the past, uh, well, I think it was a mid late seventies, probably when I got that dog, and it it just changed everything. Up until then, I hunted every uh, breed of dog known to man, and uh, found good dogs in every every one of them, you know. But uh, consistency and uh, ability, and uh, mainly consistency, I think I would just. I was able to train 10 of those dogs while I uh, did one of the other dogs, seemed like, and it just changed my whole, Mm kind of made my career, I guess. Did you have any idea of the background of that blue tick dog from Wyoming? Well, the best I could, (laughs) like I say, that's quite a story. A a fellow by the name of Rick Kurtz that lived here in town, he was a young guy, and and, uh, his best friend uh, was uh, Mark Rackenall, and and I hauled Mike, Mark around all through uh, high school and took him hunting. And when they got out of high school, they moved in together and uh, was hunting a little bit. And anyway, uh, uh, Rick was in Riverton, and he got came home with this blue tick pup, and uh, I kind of traced it back to that area and talked to uh, there's a uh, john gordon that lived up there and um george hook and a few other guys and there was a guy up there by the name of herb burton uh never met herb but i uh he had a dog called roscoe and everybody still talks about that dog up there in that country and herb had moved there from uh nevada and I think he had some of those uh, Carol, again, names kind of get away from him, but an old line hunter out there that kind of has the Lee brother. Wiley, Wiley Carroll. Uh-huh. Exactly, yeah. And uh, anyway, as best I can tell, that's kind of where that line of dogs came from. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go, and will even help with the process of selling your present home. 
and Steve Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about, tell us about, uh, I kind of want to go back to this night hunting deal. If we can take a step back there for just a minute. Um, you know, you're living in Gillette, Wyoming. Where were you going to hunt and night hunts? Well, I, I didn't really, uh, hunt and I'm, I only lived in Gillette, Wyoming for two years and I okay. moved down to Cortez and, um, we, uh, I went to four or five state hunts. I went to Oklahoma and uh, Kansas and Texas. And there was a, we had a coon club here in Cortez that had 26 members and Cortez is not that, not that big. And I don't think there's one coon hunter in the whole County right now, but uh, at that time coon hunting was a big thing and trespass laws were, as such as they are now and uh, I really did a lot of coon hunting but I hunted eight oak I'm uh Ed won uh third place in Ada, Oklahoma on a trip down there. Mm-hmm. Almost sure. got to hunt with Roy Rogers, believe it or not. No Roy kidding. Rogers was a coon hunter, did you know that? No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did, did not. You didn't, Chris? No, oh. I did not. Yeah. He was he was at the Ada hunt that I was at down there, and I did I was just praying I'd draw out with him, but I didn't. Uh, the guy that played Spanky on the Little Rascals was his dog handler. <laughs> That's going way back, fellas. <laughs> did wow. the dog have, did the dog have a circle around his eye? Named Petey. That he was <laughs> Petey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, hey, here's Petey. a rabbit path. Here's a rabbit path, Chris. A real short. Petey was an American pit bull terrier registered by the United Kennel Club, and I saw his records when I was there wow. working at at UKC. Yeah. Old Petey. Uh, in, yeah. P. Old Petey. That's right. right. Well, I remember Ada very well. Uh, you know, been there many times at coon hunts over the years. So that's interesting. You bring that up. Who was yes, a black and tan man from Ada, Oklahoma, that wrote the Coonhound legal column? Was he from Ed Ada? Abel. Ed Abel. No, well, yeah. he he was from not actually from Ada, uh, but he was uh, from Oklahoma. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. The blind coon hunter. Yeah. He yeah. he eventually went blind with diabetes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Do you remember Dwayne Clark that owns Spring Creek Rock? Very very well. Yeah, uh, I hunted with uh, Dwayne and Mike Boone, I think was his right, dog handler. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, I think that was the most impressive uh, dog I ever not hunted with was Spring Creek Rock. Yeah. I mean, he was so well trained. I 
I don't say he was the best dog I ever hunted with, but he was the best trained dog I ever hunted with. Hmm. Yeah, really Dwayne Clark, I have a cherished photo that I had uh, that was taken at the 50th anniversary of the Treen Walker Breeders and Fanciers over in Portland, Indiana, not far from Chris there. And it was with John Shetler, who had Shetler's Sonny Boy, uh, James Merchant, that, uh, of course, you know, won the World Hunt three times. And uh, and then with Dwayne Clark, uh, Dwayne Clark was in that photo, too. So, yeah, yeah, you bring back some great memories there. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's amazing our trails hadn't crossed someplace, isn't it? Uh, it only is. a month apart, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, the... The one story, and I, I'm big on stories, but uh, That's Dwayne good. Clark was telling the telling a story that he was in the world hunt with uh, what Spring Creek CB, CB, yes, uh-huh. and, uh, and he's and I I've always got a big kick out of that. And I still remember today. He said that uh, they. I guess they got after a real hard running coon or what everybody thought. And they ran that coon for three hours. And after the hunt was over, uh, Dwayne called CB and gave him a whipping. And he says, well, man, they just, that was a hard run. These coon run hard down here. And he says, well, either way, he deserved a whipping for running trash or letting that coon out running for three hours like that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll always remember that story. Yeah, bet. You talk about some guys that were fun to be around, man. You you hit the nail on the head. I'd go to Autumn Oaks or one of these major hunts and sit around and talk with Dwayne and with Mike Boone, and oh my goodness, the stories they could tell. Some yeah. of them we probably couldn't tell on this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but, but there were some great stories, great guys. Yeah. Uh, well, when you're our age, man, we have lots of stories to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I catch it all the time from these guys from my stories. But <laughs> we, we're enjoying yours for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I went to another. I went to Plot Days in Indiana one year, and I met all, uh, uh, all of those plot dogs up there, you know, Brandenburg. Dale Brandenburger, yeah. Yeah, and and – that year, uh, Smith from Knoxville that had all yeah. the uh, Cascade dogs and right and Walker from Kentucky West. and oh, well, just all those guys. I, I I mean you do you don't forget things like that when you get in a group of people like that. They're just uh, especially when you're young and upcoming and uh, look up. I, I I didn't travel well because I was so excited about going to them. If I left here on a, Ed and I'd leave here on a Friday night and drive all night and hunt Saturday night and then drive all day Sunday so we could be back to work Monday. And I wouldn't sleep a wink from the time I left till the time I got back. Mm. Yeah, but you did it. That's that's an, the neat thing. It's uh, you know we get to talk to houndsmen from all over the country, and back east we have autumn oaks. We have the super stakes we you know we've got a lot of these big hound events that uh, a lot of pe- a lot of the houndsmen i know in the west just aren't familiar with it and uh you know this year at autumn oaks we're we're going to have several of our guests from the west uh at autumn oaks this year to uh experience that so it'll be a good time 
it'll be a good time. I, I'm excited to see how how they react to it. Uh, a gathering that size of of houndsmen. Uh, a friend of mine out in Montana, his wife is calling it the uh, Sturgis for coon dogs. You know, instead of motorcycles, it'll be uh, uh, coon dogs. So exactly. Yep. Yep. No. Well, I'm I'm probably would have been at that plot days van and just didn't know you at the time or whatever that was the breed you know that my father hunted for many years uh he started in 1954 with plots and he was a lifelong bear hunter in west virginia and uh so i i'm sure our paths probably are fairly sure our paths crossed like two ships in the night we just didn't know oh yeah wait you know what was what I remember most about that deal, you know, that was back during the day when they had the bear contest and yes, uh, the uh, old uh, Leroy Hag Hog or what, whichever oh, you yeah. pronounce that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, there was a guy there by the name of uh, Polon. Payline, Richard Payline. Mm-hmm. He had the dog that won that. Uh, mm-hmm. His name was Chuck. Well. When I got ready to leave, he gave me that dog, mm. and uh, I brought it back out west. And I tell you what, I got some some good stories about that sucker now. What was that dog's? <laughs> what was that dog's register? It wasn't that Cole Clazier's Chuck dog, was it? I don't. Think I, so. All I can remember, you know, that's been a long time. I brought that dog home so many times and laid him in my garage, and figured he wouldn't be around the next day, and two or three days he'd be ready to go hunting again i i don't think he ever met a bear even when he lost a bear fight he thought he won it was that a buckskin colored plot uh the best i can remember he was black now there was a there was a, a, a those guys from canada and i can't remember their names they were there and they had a lot of those red buckskin type plots uh, they were pretty big breeders at that time well, g- looking back, you know, we had what we called the MPHA uh, Bear Championship, and I started that in 1979 at Boonville, Indiana. We had our first uh, uh, competition there uh, and gave a championship away, and you mentioned Oliver Smith. He won it with a dog called Roland Smoke that was out of cascade big timber but anyway just more memories more stories <laughs> well you know he might have he might have been the one that won it there that year you know you uh <laughs> i don't know how many years ago that is but uh, one one good thing about stories they're my story and i get to remember them the way i want to remember i like your style <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. Yeah. Well, hey. Oh, no, I've enjoyed it, guys. I really enjoy it. Well, let's shift gears a little bit because um, I don't want to give away too many secrets on this book. I got one coming, and I don't want to. I don't want to run it for me. So I just ordered my copy. There you go. Copy today. So, um, uh, and I ordered off your website, by the way. But um, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I want to know. I want. I'll be doing that tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I want to know how you've seen uh, hunting in general, but particularly hound hunting, change over your career. 
you know, uh, I, 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 I was pretty fortunate. If we just talk about the electronics part of it, you know, I, I was involved with Roger Johnson. I knew him before he ever made his first track and collar and uh, got to be involved in some of that uh, research on that collar. And uh, Warner Smith from uh, Tritronics, Tritronics uh, were good friends, and I was on the field testing staff of the alpha when I had that six months before. So Mm -hmm. I I think one of the biggest things I think about is as well as the hounds evolving to what they are now is the electronics has been one of the biggest changes changed your hunting. You know, I mean, I hunted for years and years and years when we didn't have anything but a, uh, set of tennis shoes and a, uh, dog lead, you know, Mm Mm-hmm. And now uh, everybody sits in their trucks and watches the big screen and figures everything out. And, and it sure uh, it should, that that changed a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff for the good and a lot of stuff not so good. But uh, anyway, it's a change. And then with the dogs, you know, like we were talking before, I've seen uh, where uh, the dogs changed from emphasis on the trail and type cold nose dogs there wasn't as much game you know people the one thing uh might throw in here for people to think about you know they they think about uh you know there's a lot of game killed now you know a lot of game harvested uh by hunters but uh i moved from wyoming to colorado in uh, 69, early 70, and and uh, I hunted, uh, made my living in the wintertime basically hunting bobcats when bobcats were worth 50 or $75 a piece at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, catch 100 bobcats a year, lots of bobcats. But I'm hunting the same area now for line that, that I hunted bobcats for during uh 69 to 79 i seen two line tracks during that whole time uh i caught my first line 10 years later in 79 and the the line uh population has gotten more there's more line now than there's probably ever been uh in my lifetime at least mm-hmm. uh so you know, thanks to the hunters, they've uh, they've managed the game and and uh, set quotas and uh, selectively harvest, and we've got more game now than we probably have ever had. Uh, the that changed the hound hunting, you know, where you had to go out there and find a line track and trail it for three or four days. I spent a lot of times camped on the mountain for three or four days after one track before we got wow. it caught. You just don't do that no more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, if you trail one from one road to the next road, you better be pretty close, or somebody's going to cut the track in front of you and catch it in front of you. You know, and a lot of this public ground hunting anyway. 
a lot more hunters now. I hunted uh, this country, drive down the road in November and go back in March, and my tire tracks was the last ones down that road. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm. So that's just a few of the things that I've seen. Is that what you were? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Well, how you, things have evolved. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there right now that uh, you know I see articles, and I was conservation officer for 28 years, so um, kind of on the inside track of of hunters' numbers and the decline of the license sales and and uh you know kind of in the front lines of that whole thing so i'm always interested to hear you know especially for your part of the country you know what you've seen over the years you're talking about more hunters now Um, the national average says that there are few hunter fewer hunters overall and uh, i'm kind of encouraged by the fact that there are more hunters how does how does more having more hunters on the mountains um how do you view that well when i was making a living i was pretty jealous of it to tell you the truth and like right. most outfitters are now probably and i think uh that was another big change i've seen in in my life you know when uh any time that i I took up a new sport, whether it be coon hunting, bobcat or lion or bear hunting. It took me about two years to uh, really get proficient and learn how to uh, apply the knowledge and the dogs and uh, be consistent uh, and successful at what I was doing and and being able to make a living at it, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I the big difference is uh that i see is the they was as they got to be more hunters and money got involved then a lot of jealousy takes place in it you know and and money is the root of all evil i believe and uh i really enjoyed when we were everybody i mean everybody would have a dog or two and five or six of us would go to hunting and and there wasn't any secrets there wasn't a lot of that stuff i i really miss that yeah. uh but but uh, was there just so much i mean we could spend the rest of the night talking about uh when when i hunted coon six or seven nights a week in colorado the laws haven't changed any but from then till now, they just apply them different. You know, the trespass law in Colorado, it's my responsibility to know where I'm at at all times. And if if on one side of the tree I'm legal and on the other side of the tree I'm not, there doesn't have to be a fence or a sign or anything there to tell me. It's my responsibility to know. Mm-hmm. I used to just go hunting and nobody cared. Now that money's involved, people lease their hunting, they lease their ground, and uh, you better not get on the wrong side of that tree or you, you're you going to lose your hunting privileges for about the next three years. And if you've been in law enforcement, you understand all that. But uh, it's, it's just a fact of life. It's just a change of life, you know. Uh, I, I just, my, my head is just rolling right now, fellas. 
uh, <laughs> well, what right. I what I think uh, what I think is when I started hunting, uh, I know some of the old timers uh, uh, that had hunted their whole life and they were on the the downhill side of their career. Orville Fletcher, for one, in New Mexico was uh, a lot of those guys. You know, they thought the whole world was ending. 40 years ago because of, of regulations and um, different things, you know, season right. structures and stuff. Uh, now I find myself telling some of my friends the same thing, you know, it's, but unfortunately life changes, uh, our whole world changes and you have to adapt and change with it. It'll just eat you up. Uh, so I, I don't see an end to this thing. Uh, I think the fact that there's a lot more hunters will help keep it going, really. I recently went to the SHOT Show there in Las Vegas, and I talked about that this on uh, last week's podcast. And I was really encouraged by the the ages of people that I saw there. You know, that, that SHOT Show is shooting hunting outdoor trade show and i understand uh, yeah so it's just everybody that's there knows why they're there you know it's no surprise when you get in the doors and i saw all sorts of people that were there and and in today's climate with hunting uh the part where i said it's encouraging is you know we need all hands on deck to make sure that we keep this thing afloat so you know we do get i find myself the same way you know um thinking about the days of when i started hunting and and nobody cared that i was there nobody you know i knew the white sides i knew the reinholtz or the 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 arnholtz and the glicks and and all my neighbors and and nobody ever gave you a hard time and and even in my career in law enforcement i saw exactly I know what you say is true. I saw the shift. You know, when I first started hunting, we didn't have a whole lot of issues with hunting without consent. That The same law that you were talking about, it was your responsibility to know where you were. But people really didn't care. But when we started leasing ground and we started doing all these other things, then people started to care. And it started becoming more of an issue. So... Access has always been one of those things that has been not so much, maybe not so much where you're at in the West, but East, you know, access is a real issue that people have to contend with, contend with every day, uh, where we're going to hunt. So I know what you're saying. I I agree. You said it, you said it real well, said it better than I could, but, uh, that's just a fact, a fact of life. And you have to, always have that in the back of your head that i turn this dog loose and i can't really control where he's going so uh i hear a lot of uh negativity about the the garmin collars and stuff but without them now we would either be in jail or not have dogs probably so in today's world yeah yeah Yeah. we had let me jump in real quick, Steve, and I'll cap this off on my part of it. But uh, we just recently learned of a house file that was filed in Iowa that would make it 
a misdemeanor for a person to allow their dog to go onto property that they didn't have permission on. If you think of that as a houndsman, that's that's like mission impossible for you to be able to secure permission everywhere. But then to think that you're going to be responsible for your dog trailing off that property um, and be held to a misdemeanor. But we got I got word today that 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 bill is dead. So that was a success for for Iowa houndsman that um, I mean, how in the world are you going to get permission every single place your dog might go? That's just, that's crazy. Well, what I was going to say there, and it goes along, I think, with what Van's talking about, Chris, is here uh, tomorrow I'll be attending a meeting up in uh, the northern part of the state with some uh, uh, managers of these wildlife management areas in Florida. And the the objective is going with my friend uh, Gary Langford, who's the president of the PKC uh, State Association here, to try to uh, secure the right to hunt with hounds on some wildlife management areas. The simple reason, there's no private land available to hound people down here. Everything is tied up in leases. Oh, private. I I mean, no private land. I'm with you. So, yeah, yeah, there's no private land, so we have to turn to the public land. And, uh, you know, I like the T-shirts that I see around that say, you know, uh, public landowner. I think I maybe saw you with one of those, Chris. Yeah, I've got one. But, uh, yeah. But at any rate, that's what it's become, you know. And uh, I know one of the last things I did when I was with PKC is work with the uh, uh, Illinois State Association to try to keep all the farmers there from leasing their lands to deer, out, out-of-state deer hunters, you know, at the exclusion of coon hunting. So, Anyway, that just follows with what you're saying. You know, it, uh, access is the, is the big issue uh, for most of us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Van, before we wrap this thing up, we've been uh, talking about wolves a lot on this podcast. I just got back from a four-week trip out west and uh, got my hunting shut down several days by wolf tracks in the area fresh wolf tracks and and uh colorado i while i was out at the shot show i attended a a seminar with the rocky mountain elk foundation and colorado farm bureau about the introduction of the canadian gray wolf into colorado and i was just curious if you've been tracking any of that or can give us kind of a, a weather report barometer reading of how people are receiving that in Colorado? Well, you know, uh, I've been kind of out of the loop for the last 2018. I, I quit working for Wildlife Services, USDA, and uh, we had a management plan for wolf at that, wolves at that time here because uh, we knew eventually they were going to migrate in here from the north or the south. The gray wolves from the north and the Mexican wolves from the south. And I-70 was the dividing line, and they had a management program for each side. Uh, now it's uh, our governor, our good governor, is uh, pushing to put wolves back in the system. And the latest thing that I've heard, just heard today, um, it's supposed to be voted on this fall uh, to make it mandatory that the uh, Parks and while I put 
wolf back in the state. Uh, they've had one little hitch with uh, this Title 33 under the state constitution. Uh, they've got a statue in there that says if there's a uh, a viable uh, population, in this case of wolf, uh, they can't uh, augment it any and uh, kind of kind of let it grow and leave it on its own. And now they can go in and change that statue uh, by. Uh, House and Senate vote, but um, are the wolves in Colorado my, now? There's one pack of uh, wolves in the Meeker Craig area, in northwestern Colorado, right now established. That's been verified. Uh, so that uh, who knows? You know how that's going to go. There's 22 opinions and everybody believes they're right but uh just give you the way that's going right now if it passes the way it's uh uh trying to 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 get uh passed now uh the whole state votes on it but they're going to put the wolves in the western slope of colorado and you know 90 percent of the population of colorado Colorado lives in the eastern slope, so right. you know how they're going to vote. Um, uh, a good example in 92 when the bear hunting got stopped here with hounds and baiting, uh, when if you just took the state vote, we we uh, voted on the western slope 90% against 10% to uh, 90% to keep the the hunting going and uh time the eastern slope voted we lost the state vote by 70 to 30 percent so i'm I'm sure that's the way the wolf vote will go if it comes to that but that's the latest i've heard and all i know about it at this time i guess yeah so so what we're looking at right now it's it is a ballot initiative it's supposed to go on the ballot in november of this year but but there is a a statute in place or you're saying it's a uh, part of the constitution there's a statute it's, in place a, that should it's a title 30 the way i understand it, it's title 33 of the state constitution and in that title 33 there's a statute that that uh says that if there's a viable population they can't augment it any uh and, of course, all they'd have to do is change that statue, but that'll be one more hurdle they'll have to get across. And I think the the another save of grace they've got, you know, in Colorado, uh, the bear and line, all the bear and line damages has got to be paid out of the uh, state budget. Right. Uh, any damages that bear and line do to livestock produce or that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and uh and if if it they're trying to push it right now that if they put the wolves in there of course the verification is the big issue on that uh but but they don't know where they're going to get the money to pay for that at so that's another hurdle they've got to get across so hopefully there'll be enough hurdles that we can put it off for a while at least i'm hopeful that's one of the things that the the seminar brought to light was the fact that there is no funding mechanism attached to this reintroduction plan 
to pay for the depredation of these wolves. And when you look at uh, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, you know, they're in the millions of dollar range now on uh, paying back ranchers for depredation. And uh, the taxpayers are, are picking that up. They're picking that bill up now. So, yeah, that's one of the things they brought out was that Colorado has nothing written in their proposal about how they're going to pay these the restitution on this depredation. So, yeah, it could be it could be a win. It could be a a big big uh, plus for holding that off for sure. Yeah, I think uh, another thing uh, you know that that that's really a detriment to our side is the parks and wildlife are way bad against this thing. They don't want it wolves in Colorado at all, but under the uh, regulations, they can't have a opinion once it goes on the ballot like that. So they've, they've got their hands tied, but there's enough X, X, uh, uh, parks and wildlife people that's retired and stuff. And boy, they're, they're really screaming about it. So hopefully, uh, we sure don't need them. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your insight on that. Steve, you got anything else? Well, there's so many questions I'd like to ask Van, um, you know, uh, and it's not just, (laughs) well, you know, you were talking back earlier about, uh, going, uh, back in the, in the, back country and spending three days after a lion sometimes and camping, what kind of uh, outfit did you have? How did you prepare for that? Or did, did you sleep out on the ground or, or what, you know, how, how did that come, uh, come down? Well, for, you know, the last, for 18 years, I've, when I was working for the, uh, for wildlife services, you know, uh, <laughs> It, it was another one of those trial and error because I was the first first guy to get hired when they when the when the the problem got such to where they were paying so much money they realized they had to do something mm-hmm. and so they they called and asked me if I'd take the job and and it, it's kind of you know another one of those long stories but they. Uh, when I told them I would, you know, and, and the, the, uh, at that time there wasn't, uh, cell phones wasn't a viable issue or, uh, a tool to use, you know, so mm-hmm. they gave me a list of, uh, 10 trailheads to go to and, and, uh, I'd load my two mules and a pickup load of dogs and, and go up there and, and get to this trailhead and and from there it was my job to figure out where the the damage was and sometimes you didn't know to go whether south or north or east or west anyway you get the finally get that problem uh they just give me usually 10 places to go and and i would when i'd get those 10 taken care of i'd check back in and get 10 more places you know and <laughs> and uh but but it was ever if i couldn't put it on a mule i didn't take it now that was when i was working for wildlife services when i was outfitting uh 
I carried everything on my back and we just take off walking and uh if a lot of times on those real old tracks we would have we did as much trailing as what dogs did and um uh, mm. when you get to a point you know you I mean if they couldn't trail no more you look around the country and try to figure out which way you think maybe that line was heading and whether it be a saddle or a big point or big ledge or whatever you head for there and when it got dark you just crawled up under the ledge and build a fire and wade the daylight and start it again uh, it, it <laughs> was uh, it wasn't for the weak hearted i can tell you that uh, i i can imagine <laughs> for sure uh, you know we have a, we use a quote at the end of our podcast uh, each time by a guy in west virginia that pretty much hunts that way today still you know i mean he goes mm-hmm. in the mountain with his hounds and he may come back out tonight and it might be tomorrow night <laughs> you know when he comes mm-hmm. off so right. yeah but i t- it's a different breed of hunter today and and you know and of course everybody loves convenience uh, but you know I, I, guys that back east here have no idea you know of, of what that entails really um and how meticulous those dogs have to trail uh you know we think about turning the a dog loose and he hits a track and he runs it with great speed and he gets treed. Uh, out there, it's a slow, meticulous process to trail a line many times. And uh, I don't think many of the Eastern hunters really realize that. Do you want to comment on that? Well, it, you're right, you know, and I mean, uh, with me, it's, you know, age same changed a lot of stuff and then hunting techniques and technology changed a lot of stuff but uh i i really enjoyed the old way because we uh a line i hunted line and i hunted bear and and bear at 95 percent unpredictable uh, a line is 90 percent predictable and you pattern a line just like you do a white-tailed deer he's got a circle he's going to make and he's going to if one line might make a circle in 14 days one line might make a circle in 20 days or 10 days whatever but but that particular line is going to make that circle so when you start patterning him and you've got hunters coming in and stuff you you know pretty much where that line's going to be and you might make a 50 mile circle but you know in your area he may only come through your area twice a year, mm. but, but you know, or, or once a month, but you know, when he's, uh, that I enjoyed that probably as much as I did catching them is just the challenge of, uh, mm. them and trying to yeah. figure them out and out thinking them mm-hmm. that to me, that was a big part of it. Sure. Yeah. Our friend Kevin Hall up in Idaho, he writes a, uh, he writes a kind of a rolling story called the long walker and he he's he he uh talks about lions taking those long walks and and traveling through the country and then Brett Vaughn talked about you know the patterns of lions and stuff and it's it's just amazing to me to hear a guy that that's lived it and done it you know talk about it it's i could sit here all night and listen to you <laughs> well, I one of these days, hopefully, we'll get to sit up all night and do that very same thing. Mm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Are you still outfitting at all, Van? No, I retired. Uh, I quit my my horn hunting and turkey. I, in 1996, I took 174 hunting clients, and I'm come. I took 80 to Texas, and I'm coming back from Texas. And my wife looked at me and said, "If you want to go to Texas next year, you go. I'm not going." And so I decided if she wasn't going, I wasn't going. And uh, I sold all my uh, horn, turkey, uh, I mean, antelope, uh, deer, elk, whitetail. Mm -hmm. I sold all those uh, leases that I had at that time and ever, from 96 to 2000, 2001, all I did was train and hunt dogs. I, uh, you know, from... When I first started hunting, if you caught uh, two line a week or, or I mean, two bear a week or you know, two line a month, you were having a good year, you know. Uh, I hunted all the way from Arizona to Maine down to uh, southern Georgia across, you know, to Idaho and uh, treated 119 bear that year and uh, the next, that's six years from 96 on, I treat a 600 bear. So I'll, I, I got to do a, see a lot of country and do a lot of hunting in those six years, but. Wow. Uh, no yeah. doubt. Why well, are you still raising puppies? Uh, occasionally I, I, I use, I've got one female and I've, I've raised about, but actually I got pups out of, uh, my friend's best dog now that's, about three days old, so hmm. the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd only raise about a litter a year. <laughs> I got you. I got yeah. you. Yeah. So, I, I, I do you place those with? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Nope. Go. You go ahead. No, I just had a quick question. Do you place those with friends, or do you sell them commercially? Maybe? Well, uh, I I mean I've got. Uh, I'm going to split that litter with him, and I think I've got most of them promised already you know it just seems like you get a waiting list you know people call and want one i know sure. i don't have one now but i might in four or five months <laughs> you know? yeah. so sure. you get enough enough requests that they usually don't stay around very long i'm sure yeah so when we're preparing for the the show and i, I follow you on on social media too but uh i see you're still getting out there and getting after it Still well, I I enjoy going, but I I uh, like I say I've got a son that uh, goes with me now, and and uh, if he don't go, I I I'm pretty. It's, the stories that I just told you about staying out there two or three days; those days are long past. And if the <laughs> line's going the wrong direction, I don't turn loose on it now. <laughs> Boy, uh, I can I, sure I, identify, man. I sure I went on that. I, I got to tell you, I, I got to tell you one Please. quick, quick story that I I really enjoy telling. I uh, I took the boy that hunts with me. He's uh, six five and got 40 inch legs on him i have to jump from in the snow from track to track when i'm following him but uh, <laughs> i took him when he was eight year old and we walked all day and came out of a big canyon about dark that night and he laid down in the snow and started crying and told me he said dad i don't want to cry but i can't help it well mm. unfortunately now i i look at him all the time and say 
Kelly, I don't want to try, but I can't help it. <laughs> oh, he told you know what he told me. Uh, his his he said his Indian name must be one of us because every time I say one of us has got to go get them dogs, he knows it's going to be him. <laughs> oh, lovely! That's been fun, guys. I take can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Well, oh, I, wow. I have too. So. Real quick, vanjohnsonhounds.com is a place to find your uh, books. And I noticed that you've got DVDs on there as well. I did a set of DVDs in 2000, and uh, on not DVDs, on uh, VHS tapes, and I reproduced those on the DVDs. So I do have those available now, too. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Van. And Steve, you realize we were only an hour and a half from this guy when we were on the Navajo. You know that's pretty amazing. And as he you he was talking, I thought about that trip out to the Navajo Nation that we took just recently. And I I'm not sure if you're aware of that, Van. Maybe Chris has talked to you about it, but you know, with Calvin Redhouse, who you know. Uh, I, I believe, yes. And, uh, you know, and I didn't make it to the top of some of those mountains on that trip. And it was it was pretty much by choice. You know, I know I could have. I just didn't push the old knees and, and all of that. You know, I wanted exactly. to be up there, you know. Exactly. I wanted well, to be I'm going to tell you guys something that I that I haven't told you before. I could hear you talking on the radio when you were talking down there. Is that Really? Right? Yep. You were on the 505 channel, were you? Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, you know, I I, I don't, don't know. know. I know that. <laughs> yeah, I could. I, I, I could. It took me a long time to figure out where you were, but I could hear you. I see. Yeah. Of course, it's the top of that mountain carries a long ways. I would say. Oh, yeah. I imagine it does. Yeah. We could well, hear each we'd other be... about a mile apart. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, there was a good friend of mine that I learned was there hunting at the same time, and I didn't get to see him. He was a fellow that was served on the board of the Michigan Bear Hunters with. When I well, maybe, excuse me, maybe yeah, that was Bell, him. I heard. Did you? Was your wife with you? Or? Uh, no, my wife was. Lauren, no, I don't, Lauren. None of us. Lauren well, was Lauren was, yeah. was with us. Uh, That's who I could hear. Yeah. Oh, okay. She's one of our team members here from Wisconsin. Yeah. That's, That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> you should have came down, and found us. Showed us, <laughs> showed us what we were doing. I didn't get in by. We'll have to do that next time. Yeah, sure. we plan on being back out Perfect. there next year. As far as I know, Van and and. Uh, we are definitely going to hook up when we when we get back out there. So, this look been, forward to it. It's been a great visit, Steve. You got any final thoughts? Well, just that it's it's just awesome for me, uh, you know. And Chris, someday you'll find out when there's such a camaraderie with people of your same age, especially in this hound community, uh, with people that have done it for so many years. And I certainly have never been under as many bear trees and and all as Van has or 
but I have traveled the country with these hounds and it's just such a joy to meet somebody. Uh, uh, and I hope to shake your hand van and, and, uh, sit across the table over a big steak or whatever. And let's tell some stories. Uh, I would enjoy that to the, to the utmost. I bet we'll have some buddy. <laughs> I know we will. Yeah, Van, uh, Van, we end up we we have about three thousand people listening to our podcast every week now. So, uh, you got any words of wisdom or anything you want to share before we sign off? Well, I think uh, the way I ended my book is uh, share all those expenses, uh, experiences, and uh, and uh, trips to the woods with a young person uh you'll get more enjoyment out of it than they do probably mm. agreed good advice agreed good advice well steve i'm gonna kick it right over to you buddy okay ben we have a, a way that we close out this uh podcast every week and uh and I'm sure this probably applied to the way you hunted all those years and probably still do when we get a track to run here Uh, You follow your hounds, and I'll follow mine.